if you have appreciated assets, real estate, let's say you have a home that's been, you've had for 20 years and you've depreciated almost all the way, you get a step up in basis for that, right? So the fair market value on your date of death, that's now the basis for the new beneficiary. So they won't owe income tax on that. Other items can create income tax. So IRAs, you know, if you pass those on to your kids, the tax doesn't go away. Real estate, yes, the tax goes away. If taxable assets, like nest egg types money that's in marketable securities, that gain will go away. But again, it depends on the asset. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and today we are sitting down with Aaron Rubin, who is a specialized in financial estate and tax planning at WRP Wealth Management. With an extensive background in financial services, he advises some of the most pivotal decisions in his client's life. Aaron takes particular pride in helping tech clients make tech tax-savvy financial sound decisions about their stock compensation packages. As most of you know, in my W-2, I am in the technology sector, and this is a very impactful topic to me. So I'm going to use Aaron's time to ask all the questions I've been dying to ask. And I'll just stop there and say, Aaron, welcome to the show. Gosh, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, we like to start off with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? I came to love cannolis later in life. So Ben and Jerry's has a, a limited edition cannoli that ice cream they come out every so often. And uh, I'll say uh, Haagen-Dazs has a phenomenal cannoli ice cream that I've not seen in many years, but it's, it's very good. Now, cannolis are the chocolate with the white frosting in the middle. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So there's a pastry shell and then inside is like a mascarpone cheese or pata or some mix thereof. And then there's like usually chocolate chips on the end, powdered sugar. It's freaking delicious. And it's not really a, a dessert for like a little kid kind of because it's not as sweet, but you know, it's, I love it. Give me a double espresso and a cannoli. I'll, I'll take that any day. I like it. I like it. Now you mentioned Ben and Jerry's and Haagen-Dazs, but I'm assuming in Southern California or the San Francisco, Silicon Valley area, there's got to be some good ice cream shops. The next time I'm out there, what's the one ice cream shop I, I should make sure I hit up? <laughs> Gosh, there's actually quite a few. Honestly, if you're kind of in the touristy sort of areas and you end up at in the ferry building, I think there's a Three Twins there. And Three Twins is very good. But there's quite a number. There's Joe's Ice Cream that's in the Richmond. And anyway, there's there's lots of, lots of choices. Nice. I was trying to convince my friend to go out to San Francisco and hit up Nap. And she was like, oh, I don't want to go there. And I'm like, you've got to understand the food scene is absolutely amazing out there. So I'm assuming that they've got to be some good ice cream. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. You know, I know there's I've been to a couple Michelin star restaurants in Nap. And nice. very cool. Probably too cool for me, to be honest. But, uh, <laughs> but it, yeah, it is a foodies heaven uh, out there. Love it. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Yeah. So I work with my firm, WRP Wealth, and we specialize in helping people at pre-IPO companies make intelligent decisions about their stock compensation. We are a tax-focused firm to boot with that. So what does that mean? So for us, that means having a tax firm in-house. So we help people prepare their returns. We file them for them. We help them think through various elections they might have to make. We do tax projections for them. And then based upon that, we help advise on sort of that wealth side. You know, what is your strategy for unwinding, you know, your concentrated position? And what are you really trying to accomplish around that? And then of course, there's, we have a few clients that are, have estate tax problems or many more that will likely have an estate tax problem in the next three years when the exemption falls by, you know, more than 50%. So, Again, our thing is 
integrating tax and wealth, having both sides speak to each other. At the end, you know, our mantra is, you know, it's not about what you make, it's about what you keep. And that's what we're all about. That's right. I mean, I think tax is the number one expense anybody is going to have over the course of their lifetime, not specifically in the dollars you're going to spend in taxes, but the opportunity costs those tax dollars cost you over the long run. So I'm super interested to dig in there. But before we get there, we were talking before the show that you recently in the past year have purchased a couple of rental properties. I want to hear about that. Yeah, sure. So my wife and I, we had some cash lying around and we have a fair amount in the stock market. And one of the things uh, that we want to do is sort of branch into real estate a little bit. So, you know, I have a good number of clients, you know, in California and a lot of them have actually moved to Texas or actually Nashville as well. You've seen an influx of Californians, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Matt. So my apologies. I'm kidding. But we looked out and we said, okay, you know, where do we want to buy these properties? And, you know, at first we said, all right, well, let's look at Austin because like freaking everyone, their mom is moving to Austin. And so we looked at it and the numbers just didn't make sense, right? It, it didn't pencil out. In terms of our requirement is we wanted to be cash flow neutral and, you know, we were going to put 25% down, you know, where could we do that? And the answer was, as I said, not Austin. So we started looking around to other areas of Texas and we ended up in Dallas, specifically North Dallas. And we picked up property a little over a year ago in Little Elm, Texas, and it rented almost immediately. It's cash flowing. It was cash flowing until, you know, a massive hailstorm damaged the roof and we had to replace the roof and the insurance company picked up about half of it. So $7,000 later. And then about three months ago, because that first one went so well and it was already up, I think 15 to 20% from when we purchased it, we said, well, geez, let's just do this again. And so we purchased another house close to Little Elm, but sort of in that same neighborhood. And with and before you even had it rented, that storm came through and we had to replace that roof as well. So, you know, sometimes when it goes well, it goes really well. And then, you know, you, there are hiccups along the way. So I'd say my lesson is, you know, just make sure you have some money set aside for that sort of stuff. But so far, it's been a really good thing for us. You know, we found a, a property manager we really like and, you know, the checks come in on a regular basis and we set up the accounts, you know, we've set up LLCs for each property. And so we retitled into the LLC and then all the cash comes in and out of a separate account. So it's easier to track for us. And um, so far, so good. It's been nice. Nice. Yeah. North Dallas, specifically around the McKinney area is super nice. I've got a couple of friends out there. I'm interested. How did you find, you mentioned your property manager was good. How did you find your property manager being virtual or half a country away? We interviewed a bunch and we wanted one that specialized in that North Dallas area. You know, there were some that were like, oh yeah, we're all over Dallas. No, we wanted North Dallas. And so we said, okay, who are those people? And we started talking and we were asking them sort of the same questions. Can you provide us, you know, an example of a property that you manage and can you give us a, a PL on what that looks like? You know, and a lot were sluggish or a lot didn't really care. My guess is because they had plenty of business and, you know, incrementally, we probably don't bring a lot to the table. And we found someone who ran comps for us and we felt comfortable with and specialized in North Dallas. And we asked him, hey, do you have a real estate agent now that you like? Hooked us up with a real estate agent. Love my, our real estate agent. He's great because he's a real estate agent that does a lot of rental properties. He himself has rental properties. So when we were looking in, and again, virtually at these different homes, you know, he would walk in and he'd say, no, I wouldn't do this one. Or there would be something in the disclosures and he'd say, you know what, don't do it. And to me, that's a good sign. And then because they work together, we would have, you know, we'd look at a property and we'd say, oh, that looks good, but does the, do the numbers work? And so we went back to the property manager and say, hey, you know, based upon the comps you're seeing, you know, what do you think we could get for this? And so again, we did a lot of due diligence on that side. So 
that's how we got to it though. Whoever's willing to work, that's a good sign. Yeah. And good property managers are worth their weight in gold. When you said the PL statement, I kind of smiled a little inside because I have one that does a fantastic job at putting together a PL, specifically at the end of the year, as well as your tax forms and things like that. And then I have one that's just like, nope, here is your revenue you received. Good luck figuring it out from there. So if you're not oh, figuring wow. it out on the back end, it's it's rather annoying. I'll ask one last real estate question. Why did yeah. you decide to put them in an LLC if you have two of them? So it's from my old accounting days. I'm a CPA and I didn't want to put them in the same LLC because if something happened, you know, slip and fall on one could lead to the other one being taken, you know, if, you know, something really bad happened. Now, of course, I have plenty of insurance, but, you know, having them separated again was to me the better way to do it. You know, if we end up getting a few more properties and, and that could happen for us, you know, I'd probably have a, I'd have probably have them roll up into a single LLC at the top. But for now, I'm, I'm good, you know, with where they are. But it was a legal liability thing. Yeah, I know we haven't had a chance to dive deep into your story yet, but you're an attorney, a CPA, a CFP, and a, an accountant. So I found that very interesting because it wasn't until probably like property four or five that I started looking at asset protection like that. But clearly you have a lot of experience in that because you're like, nope, after one or two, we need to make sure this thing is set up correctly. Yeah. I worked at a regional firm here in California who did a lot of real estate. And the thing I noticed about all of our biggest clients is every single property had its own LLC always. Yep. So I thought, okay, these guys know something that maybe I don't, or maybe I should know. And that's, that's how I've structured it. You know, the one thing I did in talking with the attorney when, who helped us move because the, uh, the bank wouldn't, or the mortgage company wouldn't process through an LLC. What the attorney said to me is, Hey, make sure you have permission to move it in the LLC because some banks get very particular about that. So before I did anything, I emailed the, our reps and said, Hey, can I do this? And I have it in writing that they said, yes, no problem. So I'd say, you know, if you're a small investor in real estate, you know, get things in writing. Yep. Yep. Beautiful. All right. Well, now I want to take us to the wealth management side. And really, there's kind of the pre-IPO stock options conversation I want to have with you, as well as the second part, which is the estate planning. But before we do that, your firm is a fiduciary firm. And I want you to help us understand what is a fiduciary firm and what do I get with a fiduciary versus a non-fiduciary? So the universe of advisors is generally, and there are, there are exceptions, they're generally broken up into two different ones. The universe, the first is our RIAs, our registered investment advisors, and then there are broker dealers, BDs. And BDs run mainly on commission. And so their products that they sell typically have, you know, some sort of what's called a load on them. So you have to pay a particular percentage, whether it's upfront, ongoing, or on the back end. And they're not necessarily, they're not fiduciaries because they do accept that commission. And so they're actually governed by an agency called FINRA. And what FINRA says is that a broker dealer or a broker dealer representative needs to, needs to put a client into an investment that is suitable. And suitable just means, you know, it's not outrageous for that client more or less. And the cost of that, you know, if you have a suitable investment that's 50 basis points or 0.5% or a suitable investment that's 100 basis point or 1% commission, you can choose either one because both are suitable. You've done this, you, you haven't broken any rule that way. And then, and the other side is that the broker dealer rep is, he doesn't represent you, the client, he represents his company. So again, there's sort of a dual loyalty that exists when you start talking about that world. Again, not to say that, you know, again, I've met many that are great 
advisors and who would never do their clients wrong. And, and I don't want to pretend like, oh my gosh, you know, they're horrible people. Then they're not. Just a different way of viewing things. You know, for us, we're an RIA, which means that we're fiduciaries, meaning that our duty of loyalty is to our client. It's not to another entity. Again, the only people you know, that we serve are is the client ultimately. We have to do what's in their best interest. And you know, and, and even between that, there's different flavors of RAs. There's some that are called fee-based and some that are fee-only. And fee-based, sometimes they accept, let's say if they're doing like some insurance policies, you know, they'll get commission from the insurance policy or they'll get commission from some other source or and I think for our firm that's never really sat particularly well, we had that you know, for a good number of years. And as of about five years ago, we switched to being fee only. And what that means is the only people that pay us are our clients. We don't take referral fees. We don't take commissions. There's nothing that we accept. So if we refer you to an insurance agent, they don't give us a cut of anything. If we refer you to a lawyer, we don't get anything. You know, if we put you in a particular investment, we don't get anything. Again, you're, whatever you pay us, that's the only compensation we get. Yeah. So just to kind of summarize that broker dealers or non-fiduciaries, if there is a product out there that's a 0.5% commission or a 1.5 commission, they could show you the 1.5% commission because it's a suitable investment for you as an investor. Whereas fiduciaries must show you at least the 0.5% because it's in your best interest to pay a lower fee, all other things being equal. Is that kind of a good yeah, summary there? Yeah, that's a good summary. And I think you have to make the recommendation of, take, you know, if everything's equal, you have to recommend that 0.5%. And if you're fee only, you don't, it's sort of you're indifferent to it in terms of your your own pecuniary gain. The client wants to choose the 1.5. I guess they can, but again, you would never recommend that. Yeah. So, and I love the model we're in just because I've. I mean, I I serve one person, and that's the client, and yep. I love that. Yep. All right. Well, let's shift this now to this idea of stock options, pre-IPO, post-IPO, and all that sort of stuff. And the reason why I'm super interested in having this conversation is because my company is a publicly traded company and I was granted some RSUs a couple of years ago. And by the time they came up to vesting, I thought, oh, great, I'm going to get X dollar amount. And when it showed up in my account, it was definitely less than X dollar amount because of the tax consequences behind that. Uh, definitely a learning mistake for me. Definitely should have thought through that, but I didn't think through that. And I'm assuming most folks that join some of these startup companies, whether they're in technology or not in technology, they're not thinking of kind of the longer term implications of owning 5% of Google before it becomes Google. So could you help us understand you're working with a client, they've got these stock options with XYZ company that they're involved in. How do you coach them through them, talk them through uh, thinking about the tax side of that? Yeah. So the first time people really think about the taxes when they was when they want to exercise. And so they've heard maybe there's some tax stuff. <laughs> and so that's when they start you know, looking at the internet, they hopefully find us. And that's when we start talking to them about the tax side of things. You know, I just, I was just talking with a prospective client a few days ago who said, Oh yeah, I just exercised these 50,000 shares, you know, and the fair market values, you know, it's, it's only like three bucks. And it's like, okay, well, what's the strike price? 10 cents. Okay, well, that's a $150,000 difference between that, you know, when you multiply everything out. Do you know how much tax you're going to owe as a result of that exercise? And so like, well, wait a second, I didn't sell anything. You know, I I just I just bought it. Yeah, I know, but the government has different ideas of on what's income than you do. And so a lot of times, you know, that's we start thinking. And obviously the more shares you have, the more you have to worry about it. And the longer you wait to exercise, the more you have to worry about it. So, you know, we do have a client was a C-level executive at his pre-IPO company, and he waited to exercise his options. If he were to exercise you know, all the options all at once, I mean, we're looking at tens of millions of dollars worth of tax just on the exercise. And so it's one of those things where you say, okay, you know, you 
let's talk about the strategy around that. He's making good money. So, you know, there's some opportunity to sort of chip away at the incentive stock option. I'm sure we're going to talk more about the difference between incentive and non-qualified in just a minute. But, you know, there's things you can do strategy-wise to say, okay, how do I limit my liability here? And what liability am I really, do I want to take perhaps to make the future tax liability better? So it's about having current, you know, site and foresight. That's how we help people. Yeah. So I'm assuming the best time to talk to you about these tax strategies is the day you recognize that you're going to have some kind of stock options in your company. But going through that again, you were saying that the strike price was 10 cents, but the fair market value was $3. So had they exercised when the strike price was 10 cents and the fair market value was 20 cents, they would have only owned tax on that 10 cents of gain, right? Instead, they waited until it got to a fair market value of $3, said, hey, I want to go on a vacation. I need extra money. I want to buy a house, et cetera. I'll just exercise these options because now they're at a higher value. But what they didn't think through was the tax consequences of that. Is that is that a good way to summarize that? Somewhat, you know, I think most people, I mean, some are able to take some cash out, you know, if you're using certain lenders or um, prepaid variable forward contracts. But most people... I think what happens is they realize, oh my gosh, this thing's actually going to go. You know, most startups don't make it. I mean, the vast majority of startups don't make it. And so these people, they've worked for various startups throughout the years and they're used to fits and starts. And finally they realize, oh my gosh, we got our C round. We got our D round. I mean, this IPM might happen in like two to three years. And then that light bulb goes off and you're like, oh, I, I better start planning for this. And so that's really when people start really considering talking with someone like me. Yeah. And I've heard you say in the past too, that most of your clients are second time IPOers because the first time they get stubbed in the toe as they go through that kind of taxable event. So that's why I'm hoping that we can broadcast this message out to the technology industry specifically around making sure you're thoughtful through this process. Yeah. 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 You mentioned qualified and incentive earlier, and I don't want to breeze over that. Can you help us understand what's the difference between qualified and incentive-based stock options? Yeah. So there's two big types. RSUs are a different animal altogether, but you know, in terms of an actual option, right? You have non-qualified options, NSOs. You have incentive stock options, ISOs. And they both generally work the same. There's a strike price, whatever that is, the fair market value usually when you join the firm. And then there's fair market value. And the fair market value is typically determined by the 409A or the annual, actually perhaps during a funding round, valuation that occurs throughout the year. And the difference between that, between the strike price and that 409A, the fair market value, that's in accounting terms, we call that the bargain element, kind of that paper gain uh, that you get just from exercising. Now, the difference comes in on the tax treatment of that paper gain. If you are exercising a non-qualified stock option, that paper gain ends up on your W-2. And so what that means is is that if you have a substantial paper gain on a pre-IPO company and you're not able to sell... And sometimes, you know, you can't because there's not a tender offer, but sometimes the tender offer is a is a time to start exercising some of that. But if you can't sell, you're going to have to come up with the tax and you're going to have to pay the tax outside of the transaction. The ISOs are different in the sense that they don't show up on your W-2. And so on the face of it, it appears as though you're not taxed. But the problem is, is that the government set up an ingenious or, in my opinion, devious scheme to collect more tax dollars. And there's a concurrent calculation that happens when you do your tax return that most people don't pay attention to because most people don't get affected by it, but it's called the alternative minimum tax. And the alternative minimum tax, what they do is they take your taxable income from your regular tax and they say, well, that's nice, but we're going to add some things back. We're going to add some additional income and we're going to take some additional deductions away. 
So the big deduction they take away is uh, state and local income tax, which used to be a bigger deal. But when they limited to $10,000, you know, as of 2018, it became a less big deal. The big thing on the income side that we work with is incentive stock option preference. And so what happens is that delta, that bargain element ends up on your AMT calculation. And the AMT, it's a bizarre (laughs) way to do things. It's essentially a flat tax. It's a flat tax with a big exemption amount. And so you take your AMT taxable income and you subtract this big exemption amount and you get an AMT taxable income and you multiply that by 28% for federal. And if you're in California, it's another 7% from California. And you compare, you know, which number is bigger, the AMT or the regular tax, and you pay the greater of the two. And so when you have a big exercise of ISOs, for most people, you're not going to know the liability until you actually do your tax return and TurboTax tells you, oh yeah, by the way, you own a couple hundred thousand dollars. You know, for us, you know, we do the projections ahead of time. So clients know what the tax bill is going to be before they do it. But it's one of those calculations that most people don't pay attention to until they have to. When does the AMT come in? I don't think my taxable situation has ever kicked off an AMT calculation. So when does that come into play? Yeah. So whether you know it or not, the AMT calculation, you know, even usually it's, I want to say it's in the two to $300,000 range is when you start thinking about AMT. And part of the reason is, is that your first couple hundred thousand dollars of income from marrying filing joint is taxed below 28%. And then you eventually get to the 28% bracket, 35, 37. And so that AMT calculation, when it, when, when it happens, because you're taxed at a lower rate for some of your income on the lower scale of the tax table, the AMT rate's much higher. So that's so around 300,000 when you start thinking about it. But again, if you have a lot of preference items, it becomes a bigger deal sooner rather than later. Uh, what's a preference item? I don't think I've so, heard that. Oh, yeah. So it's that bargain element from the incentive stock option. Gotcha. That, that's what we call an AMT preference item. If it's a deduction and you're taking away, that's called an adjustment. So there's all these terms of art <laughs> that exist on the tax return that a lot of people don't see. Your TurboTax automatically does the calculation for you. You just don't know it because maybe you're not in the AMT. It doesn't really affect you, but it's there. It's there. It's just lower than your regular tax. I was saying what makes it even more confusing than it already (laughs) appears to be because the AMT for ISOs, it's a temporary deferral, right? Because you haven't actually sold anything. So what what you're doing is you're increasing the cost basis of your stock option. And so from here on out for the rest of your life, the stock options that you exercise at that higher price for AMT purposes, they have a higher cost basis than for regular income tax, which doesn't get taxed at all. That leads to an AMT regular tax difference that ends up being captured when you sell the stock. Because when you sell the stock, what happens is you have a much lower AMT than your regular tax because you already paid the AMT, you already paid the tax. So what the government does is they say, well, gosh, if you already paid the tax, we're not going to tax you twice for regular tax. So they'll take what you paid previously for AMT. And then when you sell the stock, you can take your regular tax and lower it by a credit amount by what you already paid. So it gets super complicated very quickly. And so I apologize, but again, it's one of those things that's what the government did to us. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, it just, just made things hard. Yeah, I'm a little over my ski tips on this one, but essentially the way I'm trying to follow this is like a non-qualified option is going to hit your W-2 income. The W-2 income is the absolute worst place that you can file income because that's where you're going to get hit the hardest in terms of taxes, in my ignorant opinion. And ISO is treated as a way of flexible way that we can say, hey, that 10 cent strike price, we want to move it to a dollar and I'll pay prepay some tax now. Let that guy run to $10 and all of a sudden I'm only paying tax on that difference there versus the 10 cent difference. Is that essentially 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, either way, you sort of end up paying capital gains. It's just they make you prepay it, you know, on the ISO. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. Is that why some of these executives too have like dollar salaries and then all their benefits are tucked into these stock option based incentives? Yeah, that's some of it. You do get better tax treatment. And the government's onto that, by the way. So there's a $100,000 limitation on ISOs every year. So you can't really, really front load it for executives. You, there's a limit, but yes. And then the non-qualified option, because you and I were talking about 83Bs before, some companies will let you early exercise your stock options so that you can buy them before they've technically vested. And then what you do is you you buy them, they haven't vested, but you file what's called an 83B election with the federal government. And you say, I know that you know I haven't vested on these, but I paid for them. So how about you tax me on that difference? between the cost and the fair market value, which if you did it early enough, could be zero. So you don't owe any tax upfront at all. And then as that stock grows over time, you know, as it's vesting, you don't pay additional tax because you've already paid it, paid it, right? You've paid zero, but it's a way to sort of get around that. And if you're an, an early executive at the company, you know, you make that A through B election, you mean your, your strike price is going to be like 10 cents a share. You know, you have a million shares, you take a hundred thousand dollars out of your pocket, you buy them all. And then as they invest over time, you know, you don't have to pay the tax. Unless you sell the stock after it vests, right? Right, 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 right. Correct. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I think this is why I was so interested in having this conversation is because in my network, there's a lot of folks that have stock options and RSUs and unvested options and all these sorts of things that it makes sense to kind of squeeze out how they should be thinking about this because eventually you're going to be taxed on it. How you get taxed on that could mean the difference between a lot of tax dollars or not so much tax dollars, I guess. Sure. It's like an easy yeah. way to explain it. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Another thing we were talking about, and I don't know if this fits in with the estate plan or this part of the conversation, but it was a new term to me, the 10B5-1 plan. Can you help right. us understand what that is? Yeah. So the 10B51 plan, it's actually not an estate thing. It's a selling thing. When you're a company employee, you are forbidden usually from selling during certain times of the year when you may have material inside information or it's a blackout window for the whole company. And so what a 10B51 plan does is it allows you during an open window for you to set up a plan saying, hey, you know, if the price ends up at $50 a share, I want you to sell Y amount. You know, if, if then goes up to 60, sell Z amount. And you can peg it to anything. You could say, you know, if the Yankees win the World Series, you know, sell 30 share. I mean, it's limitless. You know, usually it's a price-based model, but it allows you to sell during blackout periods, which is helpful for some people. Or like if you know you're going to buy a house and you're going to have a close, you know, on a particular day, you know, you know, you need this cash, you know, at a certain point, you're going to want to put that 10B51 in pl- plan in place so you can sell when you need it. Yeah, I'm not important enough to have material information at my company for my <laughs> options, but I have seen that we block out dates where you can't sell. So this all is kind of tying in for me now. Yeah. What's the worst IPO tax mistake you've seen somebody make or pre-IPO, like through this process, what's the worst mistake somebody could make? The worst is that AMT issue is that they buy a bunch of stock and they think, okay, great. I don't owe tax on it. And then they come to me and I tell them, like the person I just told you, you know, about the 50,000 shares. I told them, look, I think you're going to owe additional $25,000 of tax because of this came as a bit of a surprise. And so that's the worst. This didn't happen to any of my clients, but I knew a guy who is at Pinterest and he told the story of one of his coworkers who bought a bunch of shares in Pinterest when it came out. And then in Pinterest, I 
think within a few months really took a hit. And so at the end of the year, you know, he was bummed that the price was down, but he was even more bummed that he owed, you know, millions of dollars of tax and he was going to have to sell these shares at the worst time. Loss. Yeah. But, you know, it's either that or you go on a payment plan or you, <laughs> or you don't pay your tax, you know, which, you know, you don't want to do. So yeah, it's the planning around that. that gotcha. That been, it gets ugly. Gotcha. All right. Well, I want to shift us now into the estate portion of it. So you mentioned some of the estate plan runoffs that are happening right now. Help us understand, first of all, what is an estate plan? Why would I need an estate plan? And then we'll dig into some of the specifics there. Yeah. So, I mean, the estate plan is generally, you know, the documents you need that get everything in order uh, in the event and when you eventually die. When we talk about estate, right, there's the, you need a will, you need trust, you need, you know, all the other powers of attorney, but the estate tax is also an important piece of it. And for now, if your estate per individual is under about $12 million, you don't have to really worry about the estate tax. So husband and wife, $24 million, as long as your assets are less than $24 million, doesn't really affect you. However, that was put in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2018. And that is set to sunset at the end of 2025. And so what's going to happen is that 12, and at that point, it might be even closer to 13 or 14 million per person. It's going to go down to, I think it's somewhere about five and a half or 6 million per person, which, you know, it's 12 million is still a nice chunk of change, but it's not 24 million. And, and for people that have those stock options that went really, that went big, I mean, not even super big, you know, you might end up with, you know, 15, 20 million, which is great. Or, you know, you're a California person or and you have a house that greatly appreciated or you have a lot of life insurance because like me, you have little kids and you, you want to protect your family. And all of a sudden, you know, it's not the amount you thought it was going to be. And so we have to be forward thinking in that sort of thing. And so, you know, like for me, you know, I'm worth way more dead than alive, you know, with all my insurance. And so at some point that could be an issue. And for the last few years, the estate tax has been so, the exemptions and so high, you know, you don't really need to do a lot of trust work around that. But, you know, if, if all of a sudden it's a lot smaller, you know, and you have, you know, $4 million life insurance, your spouse is $4 million life insurance, you're already pretty close to yep. that limit for husband and wife. So you're going to have to really pay attention to that. Yeah. So in short, pre-2018, if you had a net worth of under $5 billion, you weren't a state tax. If you had a net worth over $5 billion single, then you were a state tax. 2018, we moved that to 12 single, 24 jointly. Now you're saying in 2025, those are reverting back to the older levels of about $5 million. So if you have a net worth of more than 5 billion or more than 10 million as a married couple, then you will be asked to pay the estate tax when you pass before you can give it to your heirs. So you all come in and you help specialize. How do we want to structure this so that, I guess, avoid paying some of these taxes? Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. 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 There's lots of ways to do it. And we don't do the documents. We don't write the documents. We, we work with other professionals, but we will bounce ideas, you know, with the client and see what they want to do. Cause we talk about, you know, okay, well, do you want something to go to charity? You know, is philanthropy, you know, a thing for you or are there other trusts you may want to use to help fund uh, some of these liabilities? Yeah. I often hear trusts getting thrown around in this conversation a lot when we're talking about estate planning. Can you help us understand like where does a trust fit in into the estate plan? Yeah. Well, I'll say different states have different preferred ways of doing things. So I know in California, everyone has a trust because that's, I mean, again, it's just the nuances of California law. Trust make a lot more sense. It's the probate code. It's the whole thing. You know, different parts of the country, it's much more rare. 
to see. But a trust, what a trust is, it's essentially a, a big contract, you know, where, you know, the people that are creating the trust, which are called the grantors, they say, you know, all right, well, we're going to put all of our assets into this entity. And the entity, by the way, is controlled by the people that fund it. So it's for tax purposes, it's called a disregarded entity. So again, you report on your tax return as normal. And then what a trust is used for is a lot of times incapacity and eventually death. So, you know, if all of your assets are inside, you know, you and your spouse are both incapacitated, there's a trustee set up that comes after you that can say, okay, well, I'm in charge now. And then they can make distributions. They can do whatever they need to do. And then eventually when you pass away, their job is to distribute the estate or put them into sub-trusts if you have young kids, whatever else needs to be done. And and the trust is really there to make sure that your wishes are carried out. Again, it's a lot like a will in many regards, but it is different legal entity. Yeah. And because the trust is inheriting the estate, essentially, then me as the beneficiary of the trust and not being taxed on that. Is that correct? Well, some of that's a bit of a different issue. So if you have appreciated assets, real estate, let's say you have a home that's been, you've had for 20 years and you've depreciated almost all the way, you get a step up in basis for that, right? So the fair market value on your date of death, that's now the basis for the new beneficiary. So they won't owe income tax on that. Other items can create income tax. So IRAs, you know, if you pass those on to your kids, the tax doesn't go away. Real estate, yes, the tax goes away. If taxable assets, like nest egg types money that's in marketable securities, that gain will go away. But again, it depends on the asset. Because it's a step up basis, right? Yeah. Yeah. So essentially, and I remember having this conversation with a lawyer in estate planning a years ago. So it's all coming back to me now that if I own a property for a hundred thousand dollars and when I die, it's a million dollars, whoever inherits it is going to get the million dollars, not the $100,000 property that I initially bought. As their cost basis. And the really cool part is that you start depreciating again. And you don't depreciate based on $100,000, you depreciate based on a million dollars. And then if you sell it right when you get it, again, there's no gain you know, or loss. That's why I think real estate is one of the best generational wealth building tools out there. Because essentially I can buy a property. The best way to get rich is to buy property in 1940 in lower Manhattan and then just never sell it and then give it to your child, basically. I heard that said on a podcast one time and I'm like, yep, because essentially when they inherit that property, they're getting the current market value versus what I paid for it. And if they, to your point, sell it immediately, then their current value was a million. They sold it for a million. They pay no tax on it. So that's a fun way to think about how do you set your future generations up for success. Yeah. Yeah. And when you start using trust, it can get complicated depending on what kind of trust it is. But no, gosh, if I can go back in time, that'd be phenomenal. Yep. There's lots of things I'd change, but... <laughs> yeah. Yep. This is a fantastic conversation, Eric. I've loved learning more about your tax strategies and some about estate planning, but I want to be cognizant of your time and switch us now to the last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first right. one is, what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? So this is a good time for me to plug my book, Financial Adulting. I wrote it three years ago at this point and available on Amazon and, and Kindle. But aside from my own book, I love The Power of Habit which was by Charles Duhigg. Just a really great book. Kind of, it blows your mind, you know, in terms of how habits are formed and kind of what they do for us. Yeah, but it's a phenomenal book. Yeah, you can plug your own book, Adult the Financial Adulting, which we'll link in the show notes, but Power of Habit. Have you ever read James Clear's Atomic Habits as well? No, I haven't. Yeah, so I've read The Power of Habit. I've not read Atomic Habits, but I've listened to James Clear kind of give his hour-long keynote on it. And I would recommend that back to you because it's a fantastic listen, cool. at least to some of his keynotes. 
Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you do every single day and the things that you do every day. What are some of the things that you do every day? So I always manage to take a walk before a big meeting or something that I'm working on that's that's really important just because you need to clear your mind, right? We're not meant as a species to sit and watch a screen all day. Our, you know, our, our, our leg muscles, right? Which are the biggest muscles in our body, you know, are basically inactive. And so I always, you know, take a walk at least once a day and depending, you know, if it's a particular event, you know, it might be a couple of times a day. Again, clears your head. You know, the sunshine's good for you. The air is good for you. And it really helps me think more clearly. You've um, motivated so- me to go for a walk after this. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's easy to do when you're in Northern California, right? There's only like 10 days a year that you can't do it. Yeah. It uh, depends where you live. It's a little easier. Yep. Yep. Our third one is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? So it was law school. And it was first year, first semester torts, which was taught by our dean, the dean of the school. And she was taught, it was the last like five minutes of class. And she started talking about the exam because none of us had ever taken a law school exam before. And so, you know, she was, she was saying, you know, you're going to get, you know, fact pattern, you're going to have to go through. And then at the very end, she said, you know, and, and you're going to have to give some sort of answer. And she said, you need to be bold and you need to be brave. And that stuck with me because I thought, you know, because when we think of bravery, we think of, you know, gallantry and we think of, you know, physical activity, but to be bold and brave in your thinking, that's always stuck with me. And I've always tried to do it. Be bold, be brave. A lot of alliteration there too. Yeah. (laughs) Our fourth one is what's the thing you're most proud of in your life? I'll go, I'll go the years 2006 through 2000. 10. Uh, so in, in that period of time, I graduated law school. I passed the bar. I got married. I bought my first condo. I sold that condo, moved into a house. I got my CPA. I got my CFP and my first child was born. So it was a lot and Thank I survived. <laughs> so uh, three years that were just crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? I was thinking about this and I'm going to choose Tank Man. Tank the UFC man. fighter? No, is that a UFC fighter? I don't know. I don't watch UFC. Is it really a UFC fighter? I, I, there used to Tank Abbott or something used to be a UFC fighter. No, Back when no. it was like illegal. Oh, <laughs> different guy. Uh, <laughs> no, Tank Man, you know, when I say it, you'll be like, oh, that's what it is. The guy that stood in front of the tank at Tiananmen Square. Ah, um, yeah. You know, and nobody knows his identity and no one knows what happened to him. And I, first of all, I'd love to know, you know, both those things. And I'd love to know, how do you get that sort of bravery? How do you get that courage to do that? You know, especially in a totalitarian regime. Just, I mean, that blows my mind. Definitely one of the most iconic images of someone being bold and being brave. I'd say it's the most iconic images of maybe of my lifetime. Yeah. Well, Aaron, this is fantastic. A little over my ski tip on some of this tax professional stuff and estate planning stuff. So that's why we have you on the show. And if our listeners wanted to learn more about the services you offer or start to plan for their IPO or big exit, what's the best place we could point them to? So our website's great, wrpwealth.com. You can schedule an appointment if you wanted to chat with me or, or anyone on the team. I'd encourage you to go on our Twitter at wrpadvisory. And we post our blogs there all the time. So if you're not big into websites, you know, give us a follow. And and again, we we talk about topics for pre-IPO individuals. Perfect. Well, Aaron, thanks so much for having you on. And if the tax codes change or if I find myself in a very fortunate event, we'll have to have you back on so you can answer all my questions. Fantastic. I could do this for hours. I love geeking out on this stuff. Yep. 
Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.